Well, if Luke chapter 18, uh, verses 18 to 30, teaches us anything, it teaches us certainly that humans are notoriously terrible judges of themselves. Uh, We can see this exemplified in the rich young ruler who, when reflecting upon the Ten Commandments and upon the law of God, concludes that he has kept these commands from the day of his youth. Now, that's not something that is trapped in the pages of Scripture. That's something that lives and breathes uh, in your and I's life. Uh, In fact, uh, there's many different ways you could illustrate the the fact that humans are bad self-judges. One of of my favorite ways, though, that this has been illustrated is in several studies conducted over the course of decades of time that reflect the reality that humans uh, give positive judgments to themselves when asked to reflect on how they did on certain activities. Particularly in 2022, there was a study done by the Harvard Research Faculty at the School of Medicine there. And what they uh, were looking for is, what does it take for someone to lose weight? Uh, What does it take for someone to control their own diet? And do people have a good grip on how healthy or unhealthy their diets really are when asked uh, to track it over the course of time? So what these researchers did is from 2021 to 2022, they had, a group of re- they had a group of participants track their own eating habits, track their own weight over the course of a year. And at the end of that year, they asked those uh, participants to rate how well or how poorly they think their diet over the last year was and whether or not they think their results, either gaining or losing weight, would correspond to their dietary choices. Now what's amazing in this study is not is not that people uh, were unaware of the data, but when given time to reflect and ask point-blank questions with objective data in their, in their rear view, they still tended to overestimate greatly how healthy their diets were. In fact, 75% of the people who participated in the study positively overestimated how healthy they had been eating for the last year. That is, and they, these are not people who had no idea what they'd been eating. These, remember, are people who were told to track what they had been eating, track their weight, track their progress. And even in the face of all of that data, they still positively overestimated how well they were doing at the end of that year. The point of that is very simple, and the researchers conclude humans are bad at self-estimation. Humans are terrible, particularly when it comes to dietary tracking in this case, at estimating how well or how poorly they're doing And they conclude, well, in the realm of the dietary world, that means that it doesn't matter if you have someone track their food when they're eating it or not. People are typically going to poorly estimate what they're eating, how healthy it is or unhealthy it is, and all the rest. So they conclude, we need more research to find out how people should lose weight. Because at the end of the day, people are not good self-estimators when it comes to, uh, in that case, tracking their nutrition. But... That is illustrated here in the text as a a human issue in the case of the rich young ruler because, well, if you remember, Jesus has preached his most famous sermon already in his ministry. And in that most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, he preaches something to the effect of, uh, you have heard that it is written, uh, but I tell you, and you have heard that it is said, but I say unto you. And in each of those cases, he takes the Ten Commandments and he elevates them to impossibly high standards. One of the most famous things that Jesus teaches is that no one can keep the Ten Commandments. And this rich young ruler comes to Jesus 
asking him what can he do to inherit eternal life, inherit the kingdom of God. And when Jesus asks him, well, what do, what do you think about the Ten Commandments? And this man walks away saying, yes, I, I have kept the Ten Commandments. What else can I do to inherit eternal life? It's an amazing ignorance of self. And the rich young ruler walks into this situation, honestly, with, with a good amount of warning from Jesus. You'll notice the introductory verses of this text actually set up the question which is about to be answered. And they're the, and they're the uh, verses which we often skip over for the meat of the, the question. Verse 18, the rich young ruler comes to him and says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, instead of answering his question right away, asks him a question back. Why do you call me good? No one is good except for God alone. Now, why do you think Jesus responds with his question to his question with another question? Some people think that what Jesus is doing here is he is distancing himself from being identified as God. In fact, one of the most popular cult groups of Christianity today, the Jehovah's Witnesses, would point to this verse and others like it to say, what's happening here is Jesus is saying he is not God because only God is good. Jesus is putting himself at arm's length away from God. What is Jesus doing here? When Jesus asked the question, why do you call me good? It is not that he is saying he is not good, but he's asking the young man if he understands a true statement, namely that only God is the one who is good. He's asking him to reflect on his own statement. And that becomes really important because if the young man can define good, not in comparative terms, but in absolute terms, he's answering his own question before he is asked it by Jesus. Because when the young man is then asked by Jesus, has he kept the law, meaning is he good, he actually answers and says he is good. But Jesus has set up the question ahead of time by saying, actually, only God is good. We know this. And then the young man, after kind of affirming that, walks and responds to Jesus by saying, I too am good because the Ten Commandments God has given, I have kept. So Jesus asked the question to set up the answer for the young man. In Romans 3, Paul elucidates this doctrine of human wickedness, human sinfulness, by saying, uh, there is no one righteous, no, one, no not one, no one who seeks after God. This doctrine of human fallenness is present throughout the pages of Scripture and is here affirmed by Jesus because what Jesus says, only God is good, he's not using the term good as you and I might in comparative terms, where you say, well, so-and-so is a good person, or so-and-so is a good boss, or they are a good friend to me, or they're a good mother, as we would say on Mother's Day. We use that term good in comparative terms all, all the time in our life, where we are simply saying relative to the standard or relative to the norm or relative to what can be reasonably expected of others, that person is good. What Jesus is saying here is, if you're going to ask the question about good, before you answer the question, you have to understand you can't talk about good when you're talking about God in terms of comparative nature, meaning how are you doing relative to the median. You have to ask the comparison of good in terms of the ultimate reality of good, namely perfect, perfection. Thus he says, no one is good except God alone. He's defining the term good, not as a comparative sense. Some people are better than others or that person is good, but he's saying only God is good. Here's our definition. And definitions matter because the very next thing he asked the young man 
is for him to evaluate himself, namely how good is he compared with the standard. And he does so by asking him about the known standard to the Jewish people, actually the known standard even for us today. Do you know the commandments? Do you know the law of God? And he asks him it in a series of, uh, series of statements. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. He doesn't list them all. He doesn't even list them in the same order. He's simply scattershotting the commandments at this man. And the young man says to him, verse 21, all of these I have kept from my youth. So you follow the logic. The young man comes to him and says, good teacher. Jesus says, what do you mean by good? Only God is good. Then Jesus says, how do you think you're doing in comparison to God's good standard that I've just defined as perfection? And the young man responds, yes, I have been good since my youth. It's amazing how arrogant of a self-reflection this is. And yet, if you were to go to anyone today and ask them, by what standard would God evaluate you and your life, most people will evaluate their own lives and how they've lived in terms of general goodness. I have been good. God will accept me. I have been generally kind, loving, self-sacrificing. I have been generally... Uh, giving to others. Whatever it may be, that standard of good, people always seem to put themselves just on the positive end of whatever that line is. Perhaps you even think about yourself in those terms when you ask the question, um, how have I been doing this week? Or how have I lived my life up until this point? Even if you're a believer walking with Christ, knowing that you are a sinner, you tend to self-evaluate uh, and give yourself positive self-evaluations at the end of a given week. You say, you know what, maybe I didn't do all that I ought to have done, but I did my best, therefore it was a good week. And we often find ourselves, like this young man, giving ourselves a positive evaluation in the face of what we might say is otherwise irrefutable data, or otherwise irrefutable violations of the data which we've been given. This last semester for uh, my seminary class, one of the classes I was uh, forced to take was called Pentateuch. And in that class, my professor, Dr. Currid, spent, I think, five or six weeks going through the Ten Commandments in Exodus. And what he concludes with at the end of that time going through the Ten Commandments is he says, see, no one has kept any of the Ten Commandments. If you understand the commands, even as Moses gives them in Exodus, they are impossible to keep. It is impossible to keep oneself from idolatry. It is impossible to keep oneself from false worship of the true God. It is impossible to keep oneself from any perfect love of neighbor. We, we violate the commands at every single step. And yet, a cursory reading of the Ten Commandments and a self-reflection at a cursory level will often yield us the result of, I'm doing pretty good. You know, I haven't I haven't blasphemed the name of God by taking his name in vain by saying OMG or something like that. I haven't, you know, had any kinds of affairs in my life, so I'm doing pretty good on the adultery front. You know, I don't, I've, I don't have the body count of Ted Bundy. I have a ton of people that I've killed, so I'm doing pretty good on that front. You see, it, it's strange, but we take the standard that God has laid out and we put it to a human standard of comparative relative good, and then we say, I'm doing great. And it's not just the rich young ruler who does this. If you think about your own life, even your own week, 
maybe even how you're doing in some specific relationship in your life, you might say, generally I'm doing good. One of the most notable examples of this that I've seen in my life is when uh, I worked as a teacher at Crispus Attucks High School, and I had a bunch of coworkers, also teachers, who were given specific metrics, objective metrics, to meet in a given semester. Namely, how many students they were to get through a certain number of lessons, or how many parents they were supposed to call home towards, or how many times they were supposed to do a certain number of tests so that their students could be progressing and tracking along well. And at the end of the semester, at the end of the year, every time you would sit down with the person who's over you, your evaluator, and you'd have to have a conversation like, how are you doing? Uh, get, how's your job performance going? How are you doing? How's your class doing? How's your curriculum doing? Are you doing well? Are you on pace? And, and many teachers, myself included, in the face of objectively negative data, I didn't meet this mark, I didn't hold pace here, there's a bunch of parents I still haven't gotten hold of, all these things, maybe we're negative in every single category, and the universal result of all the teachers was for them to give a glowing review. I'm doing pretty well, all things considered. And it's just how humans are. We tend to give ourselves these positive self-evaluations. And that happens spiritually as well. When we consider ourselves in light of the holy God, and we think we're doing pretty well, all things considered. You know, we don't perfectly keep God's law. We don't perfectly obey him. We don't perfectly worship him. And yet, I'm still doing good, and therefore, God should let me into his kingdom. As the young man here says, uh, what must I do? And then, when he says, all of these things I have done, I have kept, it's essentially asking for, what else? What else can I do to inherit the kingdom of God? And in verse 23, or sorry, in verse 22, Jesus speaks to him and essentially is going to expose his terrible evaluation with one data point, which would be irrefutable, incontroversial, and it would speak to the man and it would speak to all of the hearers that this man actually isn't good as he has just evaluated himself to be. He says this, One thing you still lack, sell everything that you have and distribute it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Now here, the man is not asked to give a self-reflection, meaning, how are you doing? He's asked to prove his self-reflection by active obedience in that moment. This is not justification by works, do something and earn salvation. It is bearing the fruit of a faith which he already professes to have. One way you could say this, if I told you that I could dunk a basketball, I could speak all day long about doing that, but if we're standing in front of a court with a basketball, then you could say, hey, just go do that thing and prove that you can do it or not. And at that point, I have to either do it or not. It doesn't matter my own self-reflection or self-evaluation. So it is here with the young man. Jesus says, well, it's great that you've kept all these commandments. It's great that your self-reflection is at this point. But here's an opportunity, a moment, where you can prove your obedience. It's a small ask. You'll notice in the list of the Ten Commandments that he listed kind of in scattershot form, he doesn't ask about the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. And here when he asked the man to prove his goodness, his obedience to God's law, he asked him about that commandment specifically. Previously, Jesus has said, you cannot serve both God and money. And here he asks of the young man, take all the money that you have 
and I, as God being good, tell you to give it away and come follow me. And here's the moment of proof. What does the young man do but walk away sad because he is extremely rich? Now again, the text does not tell us it's wrong to be rich. In fact, if you remember Luke 16, Abraham, who's one of the richest men in the Old Testament, is seen being in paradise, worshiping God on that side of uh, the afterlife. But what we see here in the text is not the problem that the, that the man has money, as many have quoted, and I can't even find where the quote comes from. It's not that he has money, it's that the money has him. It's not that he has great riches and that he possesses and controls them, but actually these riches have a grip on his heart such that he can't get rid of them anymore. He's like the foolish steward who has all of the storehouses and grain full, and he says, what I must do is I must accumulate more wealth for myself. This rich young man is proving something, namely that not only has he not kept any of the previous commands that he self-evaluated himself to be keeping, but he can't even keep the first commandment, loving God above all else. Because if he did love God above all else, he would do what God requires, which is to give up all that he has in his wealth. Now there's an amazing story of a saint in the Old Testament who does just that. Abraham has his one son, Isaac, who is to be the heir of his whole dynasty, the promised child which he was given. And when God demands of him Isaac, Abraham yields Isaac to God, trusting God that even though this child, who is the most precious thing in the world to him, is given up, God will still be faithful. God will still be good. It's worth the sacrifice. And Abraham is lifted up in that moment as a model of what faith looks like. And here the rich young man can't even part with gold treasure for the sake of following after God, proving his profession to be false, his evaluation to be false, and speaking powerfully to himself that he is not fit for the kingdom. And you'll notice he walks away sad. Now then here's the question, what would you be tempted to do in the moment where someone is saddened by their own sin, saddened by their shortcoming of the kingdom of God? What would you be tempted to do in this moment, but encourage them and say, but there is still hope remaining? And notice the interesting thing that Jesus does. In verse 24, Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, how difficult is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Jesus doesn't go to this man and say, repent and believe. He kind of leaves him out on the ledge, saddened, reflective. And he leaves him there with his thoughts. And he simply comments on the situation and says how difficult it is for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Now, this is something Jesus also does in the parable of the Good Samaritan, which Luke also records for us, where Jesus allows the man to walk away thinking no one can be perfectly loving to neighbor, and he doesn't actually give him the hope of redemption at that moment. And that's because one of the central truths of Scripture is that the law must first strike a man before the gospel can heal them. Someone must first be cut down by their need for salvation before you can offer salvation to them. One of the ways we could ask this, R.C. Sproul asked it this way, is what are we being saved from? 
What are we being saved from when we say we are saved, we are redeemed? What have we been redeemed from? The law tells us we are redeemed from our own wickedness, our own shortcomings, our own falterings. The law's purpose is to cut us and strike us so that we could see clearly our need and then come to Christ, who is the solution to all of our need. And that's true for every unbeliever and also for every Christian who must be reminded regularly of the fact that even though you have once made a profession of faith and have once started on a journey following after Christ, the obedience that God requires is an active kind of obedience where every time the law rebukes us and strikes us, we once again cry out for repentance. We cry out for God to forgive us. And it's because this is the daily walk of a Christian to be struck by God's law, to be encouraged by his grace, and then to look at the law as a means of obeying him and following after him. So the rich young ruler who actually never comes to a point of repentance, just sadness, is not offered hope for mercy because he never reaches the point where he actually cries out to God for help. He simply reaches a point of sadness. There is a kind of sadness, a kind of conviction that leads to repentance and healing. And there is a kind of sadness, a kind of conviction that does not lead to any of that kind of fruit. As Christians, it's not enough for us to feel saddened over our sin. We must then run to our Savior who can forgive us of our sin. This parable illustrates for us that Jesus does not just want people to feel sad all the time about how wicked they are, but for that to drive them desperately on their knees before their king. As we saw in the previous week's text, verses 15, 16, and 17 of chapter 18, you must come like a child, humble and dependent, desperate for reliance on your God. The rich young ruler is loath to admit his need, and so when he is confronted with his own inadequacy, he's simply sad. But he's not going to then turn and call out to Jesus for salvation. It's a striking and sad picture that the gospel here leaves for us. And it's one that we ought to reflect on because as Christians, his example of a poor self-assessment and then conviction that leads nowhere is one that we ought to be warned by because well, sometimes we hit, hit these moments of despair in our own faith walk where we feel convicted over sin simply to the point of, well, great sadness, possibly depression, possibly great angst, but we never taste the sweetness of redemption that Christ actually does offer for us. That's one of the joys of being a believer, being found in Christ, is that we can confess our sin, we can repent, and then we can experience the great and profound joy on the other side of that. There's nothing holy about feeling guilty perpetually for sin. There's nothing particularly righteous about it either. It's actually to follow in the steps of the rich young ruler, not in the model that, well, we'd be prescribed elsewhere in the text of Scripture, where we confess our sin and we find ourselves unified to our loving Savior, Jesus Christ. So as a, as a Christian, I would encourage you, believer, to not sit in your sin thinking that that makes you righteous, but only to touch on your sin long enough to confess it and run to your Savior and to enjoy and delight in Him. That's why we encourage confession here often at this church. Not because we want you to be always confessing, 
but because we want you to be experiencing the joy of Christ. And confession leads to joy for believers because we have a hope that our wickedness, our weakness, our failings do not actually threaten our justification before God. If you ask the question why this rich young ruler is sad at the end of his evaluation, it's because he still believes it's up to him. And so he's sad, but he's not rejoicing because he thinks it's up to him and no one else. And then in that background, the response of Peter is rather striking. Where Peter then, or sorry, the crowd first says, who then can be saved? And Jesus says, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Then Peter says, well, we have left our homes and followed you. And Jesus, encouraging Peter, says, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the life to come. What Peter is asking is the reflection of a disciple who hears about a man who cannot part with his riches. And then Peter reflects, well, what about us who have joyfully parted with our riches for the sake of Christ? Can we find encouragement? Can we be affirmed in our belief, in our sacrifice? And God is pleased to encourage Peter in this moment to say, yes, you will be rewarded richly for your sacrifice in this life. One of the things we as believers struggle with is to constantly struggle with doubt, even though we've already been told by God that it will be so. We constantly struggle, uh, like Peter does here, even if Peter has been previously told to sacrifice it all and follow Christ is worth it in the end, he still needs to be told in this moment, at this point of reflection, and yes, Peter, it's still worth it. You still will be rewarded. This is the, the life of a believer in their sanctification journey who must constantly be reminded by the word of God, by the internal conviction of the Holy Spirit and his affirmation in your heart, by the words of other believers who encourage you in your walk, that your sacrifice to follow after Christ is actually eternally worth it. It's something we need to constantly have in the forefront of our minds. Because if the, if the scriptures teach us anything, it's that we are a forgetful people. We tend to forget all kinds of things, God's faithfulness, and also God's goodness. Because at the end of the day, Peter's question of will we be rewarded for our sacrifice is a question that hinges on the goodness of God who has asked them to sacrifice it all for him. And in struggling with that question, Jesus affirms, yes, God is good. I will reward you richly for all that you have done. And again, at this moment, I need to once again remind you, it is not because of what Peter does or what anyone does that saves them. All that's being affirmed here is the kind of faith which leads to this sacrificial life, this pursuit after Christ, a dying to self and a living to him. That's the kind of saving faith that scripture is always teaching us about. It's a kind of faith which burdens itself or manifests itself in the world in actions and obedience. What we see here then in the text between the rich young ruler and the disciples who are following after Christ is a contrast of sorts. In fact, there is many contrasts in the, in the book of Luke throughout. And in some sense, the rich young ruler is contrasted with other figures we meet in the text who throw it all on the table and ask Christ for forgiveness. But in this text, particularly verses 18 through 30, the rich young ruler is going to be contrasted with the disciples who are following after Christ. Now, the disciples are elsewhere described to us in the New Testament as being rather poor, rather needy, not well-learned, 
And they actually have a, a host of benefactors who donate to their campaign so they can even eat food and have houses to stay at. They're the kind of people who, when Paul describes the apostles as they go out into their missionary work, they're the kind of people who are led like sheep to be slaughtered. They're, they're given over for the sake of others. They're really downtrodden and despised people. And that is contrasted with the rich young ruler who has a big house, all the wealth and comfort he could desire. He's got a fully stocked retirement fund. He's got everything that money can buy and then some. And these two are contrasted. And as the reader, we are asked to reflect and ask, well, which camp would you rather be in? The camp of the disciples who have given it up to follow Christ for the promise of reward? Or the rich ruler who cannot part with his wealth and risk anything at all for the sake of following after Christ? Now, the idea of risk is one that we need to deal with because many people would say the risk just isn't worth it. We don't know what lies on the other side of eternity. We don't know what lies on the other side of death. There's no empirical way to prove it. So how is it in any way possible that this rich man is acting unwisely in his, in his lack of risking it for the kingdom of God? And what makes the disciples' risk a wise risk? Well, people make risks all the time in their life. In fact, it, every single year, you can get colleges who will convince students to take out tens of thousands of dollars in debt to risk it on some future career which might pay more. And some of the best, uh, one, of the, one of the best shows on TV running now for a long period of time is called Shark Tank, where you would get rich people to part with certain portions of their wealth to invest in companies which may or may not turn out profit on the other side. The point of both of those examples is people risk things all the time. They risk financial security. They risk all kinds of security for the sake of a gain on the other side. So then why is it foolish to risk in this life something that could yield 20-fold in both this life and the life to come? The teaching of Jesus here is that it's actually you will be rewarded richly for your risk. You will be rewarded richly for your sacrifice, for your pursuit of me. And this comes kind of full circle with a teaching elsewhere in the Gospel of Luke. It's echoed a, a number of times. But it's really found more, most concretely in Luke chapter 6, where we find that Jesus says, Blessed are those who are poor, for they will inherit the kingdom of God. Those who are poor are those who come to Christ in their poverty, and they are richly rewarded by him for acknowledging their poverty, acknowledging their dependence, and being dependent on Christ for his beneficiary righteousness, his beneficiary wealth. We might say that the rich ruler is unable to confess his poverty, his need, and so he, he does not ever come to Christ for dependence, and therefore, he never receives any riches on the other side of that. And so it is in, in your life as well. As a Christian, you are constantly tasked with evaluating and asking this question, is Christ worth the sacrifice? Now, just to draw a couple of examples to your mind, uh, any one of you might have sacrificed any number of things in pursuit of Christ. Perhaps you have sacrificed close friendships with people who you were before close to, and then after following Christ, you have lost along the way. Either by your identification with Christ or your obedience to his word, perhaps you have lost dear relationships that you once held close. Now here's the question, is that risk of following Christ worth it? 
What do you think? Was it worth it for you to follow after Christ, even if it meant losing a friendship or perhaps several friendships? Some of you who are uh, members of families who do not follow after the Lord, following after Christ might have cost you close relationship with family or even any relationship with family. And for parents who follow after Christ, pursuit of him might mean the loss of a child as they mature into adulthood and reject Christ. And it might cost a close relationship with that child or any relationship at all with that child. Another question we could ask to Christians who are in that position is, is that cost worth it for the sake of knowing Christ, for the sake of having him? Is it worth the cost? It's the question that Peter here asks, will we be rewarded? Is it worth the cost to risk everything that we have for following after Jesus? And we are promised by our Lord that we will be rewarded many times over in this life and in the life to come. Now, the text is specifically vague as to what those rewards look like. And it is clear by the testimony of experience in the history of the church that those rewards are often not monetary. But God's blessing can take a variety of forms. To part with earthly family for the sake of being found in Christ could mean rich reward in spiritual family. And those who we identify closely with, we share life with, we share our whole being with, we can part with one family and be found in another very quickly. That is kind of the point of the church, is to catch all those who are now astray for the sake of being found in Christ. But it can take a whole number of ways. Perhaps being found in Christ has cost you any number of things in your life. And God's promise is that you will be rewarded for what you have given up for his behalf. And this promise extends even unto the point of death. For what Christians are promised in the book of Revelation is those who yielded their life and and did not love themselves even unto death. They are rewarded with eternal life and a glorious home in the kingdom of God. Now, Christian, this is a promise that Jesus gives to you as his disciple. There is nothing that you have ever sacrificed in your life which will not be rewarded by him. Whether you know now exactly what that reward is, perhaps you can even point to it now if it's been long enough that you can see the difference between what you've given up and the reward which you've received. Perhaps you can be like Paul who says in Philippians that there is nothing that he has given up that has not been worth it for the sake of being found in Christ. In fact, we as Christians are prone to the testimony, we ought to have the testimony, that everything we have we count as loss because we have Christ. And if we have Christ, we have all that we need. Now, this is what the text is here getting after. And the reason I contrast the rich young ruler with those disciples who believe that truth is that the rich young ruler does not find it worth it to be found in Christ. Otherwise, he would have generously parted with his riches. He would have parted in a moment with his riches if he knew that it would lead to a better reward. And why does he not depart with his riches? Because he doesn't believe that Jesus will reward him. He doesn't believe the word of God that says, if you obey me in this, I will reward you richly on the other side. This is the sin problem from the beginning in the garden with Eve, who does not believe that God is good and will richly reward her for her obedience, but rather believes the lie of the devil that God is holding something back from us and will not reward us for any of our obedience. He's simply a cruel tyrant. 
But the affirmation, both by example in Genesis and here by the words of Jesus himself, is that that is a lie as old as time. Because Jesus is immensely trustworthy, eternally trustworthy. And actually, when Luke writes his second volume, Acts, he gives example after example after example of how Christians, even who are martyred unto death, are rewarded for their obedience to Christ. Most notably, you can think of the example in Acts 7 of Stephen, who gives up his life in testimony to Christ and who is received richly into the kingdom of Christ. Now, this text forces us into a kind of, uh, a kind of two-state reality. Either we are to be found in Christ, having sacrificed it for him, and we will be richly rewarded for so, for that sacrifice. Or we conclude the sacrifice is not worth it and we want to hold on to the things that we can grasp onto in this life. There's only really two role players in this text. There's the rich young ruler, there's the disciples, and there's the crowd who's kind of neutral in the background evaluating the whole situation as it unfolds. And we as readers are kind of in that crowd evaluating what the rich young ruler has decided, what the disciples have decided, and which path do we choose. And this is the path that is put before you as well. Is the sacrifice of Christ worth it or not? If you're a believer, you have to affirm that on a daily basis by your active obedience towards Christ. And if you've never believed, Christ holds out his hand once again to say that his worth is eternally valuable, the sacrifice will be forever rewarded, and there's not really much risk involved at all when you look at it from eternity's vantage point. And then we are left with a choice. The text doesn't tell us what the rich young ruler will decide in 20, 30, 40, or 70 years. And we are left to evaluate, was his, was his choice a wise one or a foolish one? And as readers of Luke's gospel, we are evaluated with that choice as well. So you today, you can consider this. Are the poor blessed by God? Or are they not? Let's pray. Father and God, we thank you for your word tonight. Your word is living and active. It speaks timelessly to us in our need, in our weakness. And Lord, it speaks to us truly about ourselves. We are constantly pulled, whether we are to be obedient to you, to trust your word, to follow after you. Are you really who you say you are? Will you really reward as you say you will? or to doubt and conclude that you are not who you say you are and you will not reward as you say that you will. Lord, we pray that you would give us faith to believe in your character, in your word, in your testimony. And Lord, that we would know by faith that you are, in fact, the God who is mighty to save and who will richly reward all those who follow him. Lord, we thank you that you are kind to us to give us your spirit to enable trust in our hearts, enable obedience in our lives. And we ask even as we continue in worship that you would be honored by the words of our lips, by the thoughts on our mind, and by our singing of songs to you. We pray this in your name. Amen.